This is your daughter who's a NASA queen? No. Oh. Well, she used to come to class before she moved to Austin. Way back when. Let's start. Name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, the gift of yourself to us, especially in the Mass. Um, life from you itself um, that we carry. Um, can't imagine moving through the world without you. Um, and what would we be with our weaknesses, how weak we all are, how much of a tug the sins are for each of us? What would it be like without you? Um, um, for all the ways you help us, um, and we offer our thanks and our pardon for our sins. Um, strengthen us in this Lenten period to um, dig down deep, um, to work harder, to not look back, um, like Dante at the gates, not look back, um, to commit ourselves moving forward to put our sins away. Um, and when we do, um, help us not to despair. Um, you are our Savior. Um, and strengthen us to move towards you, but help us to stay open to you, um, particularly um, when we fail or in our struggles. Um, I ask special blessing on this group for all that we're doing together. Um, help us all to be strengthened in our efforts to learn about our faith, to be strengthened in it, um, to close the gap between our reason and our faith, to bring them together, um, to deepen our own faith, and, and also strengthen us in our efforts to take it to the world, um, to witness you um, with others. Ask a, um, a special blessing again on Bev as she prepares for her surgery. Quiet her heart. Um, as, as much as can be, um, help her to be at peace. Whatever happens, um, let her know she's in your hands and to be grateful for that. Um, be with Laura's daughter. Um, her, sorry? My daughter, Laura. Laura. Um, I'm in her efforts to find a job and um, hold on. Um, um, we offer thanks for Valerie's daughter and success in finding a job and um, we ask for a blessing on her, um, surround her, strengthen her in the efforts that she is making. Um, we ask for um, your blessings on Sue in the morning group who's about to go into surgery herself. Be with her and protect her, let the operation go well. And we offer special thanksgiving for uh, Madison and um, deep thanksgiving for Tracy and all that she's done to bring her to this point. Um, but all that happens between her and these adoptive parents be good. Strengthen them for um, the struggles. They are brave people to take on a teenage girl. God, hard enough. Um, it, um, trying to help infants grow, to take on a teenage girl who's not known a family. Um, fill her heart with gratitude. Give her strength. Um, when she fails, she will. To pick herself up again. Um, to learn to steady herself in a way that she's never had to do before. 
most of all give those um, that couple um, a great courage a great faith so no matter what happens they hold on and be with Mark and help his back to heal. Um, I ask a blessing on all of us um, that we take courage in the efforts that we're making um, in this Latin period. We offer all of these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. <coughs> turn to Dunn. I'm going to do some Dunn poems for a while. Um... We just came out of that dark period, as you all know. We did Proof Rock and Spanish Cloister and My Last Duchess, so you know we've been in. Remember, the lyric is typically a rendering of the interior. We learn to go in um, to the heart of a person, his mind, and, and see what's invisible to us, which is a great gift of poets. Um, remember this um, just as a way of fully appreciating what we're doing. Emotions are obscure. Our emotional life is very obscure. I'm trusting everybody knows that. It's, um, it's much easier to have clear ideas. We can get argumentative all day long. We can fault the world all day long. We can give reasons all day long for what we do. <coughs> Trying to get to our heart and our emotions, tough. Ask men to do it, they usually, we usually trip on ourselves. They usually trip on themselves. Men don't deal with it very well. Women are more given, but that doesn't mean they're always um, as clear-sighted about their emotions because emotions are so often untrustworthy. So the emotional life is very obscure, dark, hidden. So one of the great gifts we have as a help in our world is to read these lyrics because through them we're, we're allowed to enter into the interior of people and learn to see ourselves from the inside. Not outside the way people see us, but inwardly. And we've seen in the last several weeks that um, that the lyric poet in the modern world has been more honest about evil, the evil that's inside of us, up until the 19th, except for Dunn, Dunn, Dunn's the rare exception, except for Dunn, poets have always tended to sentimentalize love. They romanticize it a lot. So the lyrics that we have tend to be a little bit sentimental, a little bit romantic. They're still good, they're authentic. But um, because they deal um, generally with what's good, there's a part of the soul that hasn't been uncovered. Um, Dante did it in a major way. Um, so until, the, until Browning and Eliot, we've really not seen the dark side of the soul. And then we read Prufrock, Spanish Cloister, My Last Duchess, and we saw something sinister inside the soul. And it was, it was a little bit like going inside one of the sinners in Dante's Inferno. But it wasn't, it wasn't through Dante's eyes looking at the sinner. Center. We're getting the insight from the person himself, and he doesn't even see his sins. You know, the, 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 the duke, or the, um, the count in My Last Duchess, has no clue about the evil. The friar in Spanish, or Spanish cloister, while he's you know, ringing down condemnations on Brother Lawrence. He has no sense of the evil he's committed. So what we're seeing is this, this interior and um, the person's blindness to it. It's complete inability. 
That's one of the great gifts of some of the modern poetry, that we're allowed to go into that world and see something that person doesn't see. Because you know if we got it from him as an outward perspective, he'd justify everything he'd do. He would explain it away. He'd, you know, he'd dress it up. But that's not what's been going on. So we entered into that interior in the modern world and became aware that there's lots of things going on that are completely different from what they seem. <coughs> and last week we went back, because I wanted you to remember what this tradition is. So last week we read some Shakespeare from the, from the sonnet cycle, remember. Um, and in two of those poems, they are, they are genuine, they're authentic, they're not sentimental. He's, he's expressing his love for his beloved. In the one of them, remember he says, love that more strongly, which you're about to lose. The fact that we know we're going to lose somebody should make us love them more dearly. And in the other, he defined love. Remember, it's that ever-fixed mark. It doesn't move. It doesn't change when things change. So both of them were affirmations of um, the goodness of love in the human soul. So I wanted to just pick that up again, except now um, we're going back to the Renaissance again, this time to Dunn, um, who comes just a little bit after Shakespeare. So let me read two, two of his poems tonight. Turn to page four. And you know poets love language, and that most poets know that there's more going on in words than we see. I've said this repeatedly. Um, I'm going to say it again tonight when we get to... The, uh, the purgatorial. Um, Alan Tate once said, um, as poetry goes, so does culture. If the poets aren't there to keep us honest about the way we use language, we tend to slip into work language. You know, the, it's the word work thing. You know, the, that, that mindless way of thinking that we step into when we enter the business world and there's a way of doing things. And we don't realize how much it forms the way we think. We're, it's like being back in Plato's cave. The poets are the one um, whose use of language um, breaks that, helps us to be conscious of language, to be more careful about what we're saying, how we're using, what we're, how we're using it to, to help us see the world. So um, remember, as I read this, Dunn's aware of the word Dunn. Okay, that's his um, that's his name, John Dunn. So. A hymn to God the Father. <clears throat> Would thou forgive that sin where I begun, which was my sin, though it were done before? Would thou forgive that sin through which I run and do run still, though still I do deplore? When thou hast done, thou hast not done, for I have more. Would thou forgive that sin which I have won others to sin and made my sin in their door? Without forgive that sin which I did shun a year or two, but wallowed in a score. When thou hast done, thou hast not done, for I have more. I have a sin of fear that when I have spun my last thread I shall perish on the shore, but swear by thyself that at my death thy son shall shine as he shines now and heretofore, and having done that, thou hast done, I fear no more. Beautiful, huh? Yep. I mean, he's so honest about 
which I did shun a year or two, but wallowed in a score. I mean, he's so aware of his weaknesses and so trusting that even with his weaknesses, his father, the son, will help him, save him. A good thought to keep with us as we go into Lent. Yeah. Who's, who's again, Bob? I'm sorry. Who's the who's the author of it? John Dunn. John. John Dunn. Okay. I'm going to read Dunn for a couple of weeks, so we're we're going to go through some of these. And by by the way, if um, we haven't asked for a donation for a while, but if people could just give a donation for the printing, not right now. Maybe when you go out or next week, just if you could help out. Dunn's the good moral. This this is one of the. I'll, I'll read some that are not very affirmative. They're much more like um, Eliot's proof rock, dark. Dunn's an amazing poet. What he did in the Renaissance is truly amazing. I'll read some of those too, but these are poems affirming love because we've just come out of hell. And I wanted to try to reinforce what we're doing in purgatory. So, the good moral. And remember the scene with Nicodemus. You know, the being reborn and Nicodemus saying to Christ, how did he say it? How can I jump, go back in my mother's room and yeah. jump out again or something like that? What are you talking about, being reborn? I mean, it's so comic. Because if, who, wouldn't, who of us wouldn't have acted the same way? Yeah. Being reborn? Are you kidding? Um, and Christ is making it clear that, that according to our faith, rebirth should be a part of our life. That we renew ourselves. What's Easter for? What's Lent for? If it isn't to, to enter into a death, and be renewed, be reborn. Remember, suffering means to bring something up. To, it, it actually is related to the word fertile, to bring up. But what happens when we suffer through an ordeal is that we do undergo a birth because our whole consciousness changes. We don't see the world the same way. It's like we go through a rebirth. Anyway, just keep that keep that passage in mind because I, I think it's funny when Nicodemus says that and, and when Christ is really talking about being reborn in the spirit so it doesn't matter how old you are or how close you are to dying. It's Rebirth is can happen as a gift given by God if we open to it. It's a good moral. <clears throat> I wonder by my trust what thou and I did till we loved were you not weaned till then, but sucked on country pleasures childishly, or snorted we in the seven sleepers' den? Twas so, but this all pleasures fancy be. Everything before these fancies, uh, these pleasures, were all fancies, they weren't real. All pleasures fancy be, if ever any beauty I did see, which I desired and got, twas but a dream of thee. And now good morrow to our waking souls, which watch not one another out of fear, for love all love of other sights controls and makes one little room and everywhere. Let seed discoverers to new worlds have gone, let maps to other worlds on worlds have shown. Let us possess one world, each hath one and is one. My face in thine eye, thine in mine appears, and true plain hearts do in the faces rest. Where can we find two better hemispheres? without sharp north, without declining west, that is one wherever you are. Whatever dies was not mixed equally. If our two loves be one, or thou and I love so alike that none can slacken, none can die. 
it, it, it's a beautiful image, and particularly that line, and makes one little room in everywhere. If you love each other, I mean, if we love the way Christ invites us to love, isn't the world different? There's no north or south or east or west. We, we somehow become one with the world because we see the world through eyes of love. You know, um, changes everything. Okay, review. Um, I want to do this for Bob and Marcy. It's, it's a way of saying welcome back. I cannot tell you how glad I am to see you guys. Even you, Robert. Huh? Even me? Even you. God, well, I'll pick us up and change Forget that. me, you have to take him. I know it's the pit. I know. <laughs> um. I've heard those words before. <laughs> um. We've done this a couple of weeks, but I, if, if everybody will just be patient for a few minutes, I, I want them to pick this up because it's too important. The last couple of weeks, this for you two, I want you to hear this because I, I know because of your minds um, how important this is, and I don't want to, I don't want you to go past it. So when we when we picked up purgatory, I talked about the importance of the Trinity for the whole work. Um, um, it informs the entire Commedia. There are three canticles, Inferno, Purgatorio, Perdiso. Each canticle is divided into three. There are three sections to hell, there are three sections to the Purgator, there's three sections to the Paradise. So lots of people look at that as a structural effect, just a structural principle. It's not for Dante. And most importantly, the Terza Rima, the, the three-line stanza with an A, B, A, B, C, B, C, D, E, the stanza is exactly the same. It's a terza rima. It's three lines. The first two lines rhyme, and the middle one gets picked up in the next stanza. Uh -huh. So it remains absolutely the same, fixed, while it moves. So in 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 lots of ways, the terza rima is a perfect imaging of the Trinity again. Still point, always moving. Oh, yeah. Where were they? The book too. You need a tote bag. Oh, I need a head. <laughs> <laughs> you kidding me? Save the day. God, this is getting worse and worse. Pray for me. Even more importantly, pray for her. Serious. Um, talk. So, for you guys. Trinity informing everything. Um, the the image of the Trinity that most corresponds the, in, in the human person is what Saint Thomas calls this. We we see it most clearly in the in human consciousness or the human soul, being, knowing, and loving. Every human every human person is. Right? He's being. I am being. Because we know that lots of people are being, they could go into a coma and their mind won't function. So a person can be and not know. A person can be and not love. But we were made, our whole being is structured along a, a Trinitarian principle. We have being, we know, we love. Okay? Mm -hmm. Those three qualities line up exactly with God. He is... 
He named himself in the Old Testament, I am that am. He is being itself. He is being itself. Right? He's one whole being. He's all goodness. He's, um, he, um, he also wills. He has a will. He loves. And he knows. We know that when God conceived of himself, because he's all knowing, right? The act of conceiving himself produces the Son. He's an image of the Father, the idea of the Father. He's the concept of the Father. Because he's all being, he's co-eternal. He's begotten, not made. He's one in being, right? And he loves. And the love between the Son and the Father is the Holy Spirit. Each one of them is completely being in himself. Okay? One God, three persons. The fact that God knows himself produces the Son. The fact that he loves the Son produces the Spirit. So we know in God there is being, there is knowing, and there is loving. Right? But since he's all being, they're not parts. We're humans. We're contingent. So we can be and not love. We can be and not know. Right? God can't. Because he's, he's, he's all love. He's all knowing. He's all being. Okay? This is really important. So the Trinitarian principle unfolds here in what humans are doing with their knowing and loving. Because in hell, we've seen people have lost the good of the intellect. They don't even know that they're damned. And they don't love. That's why they're there. And we saw that they're stuck. They're just going to repeat that. Whatever they were doing in life that was so important to them that they loved something more than God, that's what they're doing. That's what they've chosen. So in a sense, there's no time for them. There's nothing going on. They're just stuck there. That's what they're doing. Whatever the simple thing was, however stupid, they're there. Okay. Um, so the Trinitarian principle is not a structural principle. It informs our very being. The people in hell don't know they don't love. Okay. We saw that when we move from the purgatory, from the inferno to the purgatorio, people were aware of their sins, wanted to change them. So their their minds are open, and they're learning to love. And so there's time moving. They're all moving forward. They're in motion. They're not stuck. Okay. In the inferno, people wanted justice. That's what they got. In the purgatorio, they wanted justice, but they knew that they couldn't have, they couldn't reach their final end without God's help, the mercy that He offers. So, justice is being realized; it's not being done away with. They have to fulfill a law. They know they broke it, so the law is not done away with. I'm, I keep repeating this because the modern world has got those two things separated, and possibly they're fulfilling justice. They're they're living up to the law, but they're doing it in mercy, in charity. They're going through. Purgatory doing penance. Okay. I introduced St. Augustine's image, one of his images of the Trinity. And remember, according to St. Augustine, um, one of the most important images for him was memory, um, understanding, and willing. Very similar to Thomas, a little bit different. And I, I reminded everybody of what we did when we did the ancients, because memory, remember, according to Homer, um, was cosmic. 
according to the ancients, Zeus made it with Mimosine. made it with Melissa and produced the nine muses. And the nine muses were behind every, every, there's not an activity that they didn't cover. Each one of the muses oversaw a certain epic poetry, war poetry, activities, I mean, whatever they were, history, the sciences. They were the, they were the first causes of every field, okay? So, according to the ancients, there was nothing going on in the human world that wasn't explained by the divine. It was behind everything. History, science, poetry, didn't matter. And nine, as you all know, is a multiple of three. There it is. There it is again. Imagine three exponentially, three-dimensionally. It's not three, it's nine. I mean, it's, it's dimensional. Because Mimosine wasn't memory as we understand it, it wasn't a psychological memory. It couldn't be reduced to what the sciences could do. Mimosine meant everything. All that was. If you wanted to know something, you went back into that memory because everything was contained there. Okay? So the epic poets, when the epic, when Homer starts his, po his poems, he invokes Calliope, the muse of epic poetry. If he wants to learn about divine things, if he wants to present them, he's got to go to her. What does he do? She helps him tell the Iliad, the Odyssey. Virgil does the same. Okay? I know I'm going fast, but is everybody okay? Okay. Um, now, here's the point. <sighs> Taking St. Augustine's image. Um, when you've lost something, where do you go? You go into your memory. If you forget, if you can't find your books, <laughs> you can't find your books. Where do you go? Don't anybody say your wife. I know. Well, you remember to call. Oh God! Somebody help. Um, where do you go? You go into your memory. What did I do last? Where did I? Where did I put it? Where? I mean, we all know this, okay? For Saint Augustine. That's a psychological dimension. The spiritual dimension was infinite because it's all there. All of it. Everything. So for St. Augustine to go back means not to just go back where you lost your books or some name you couldn't remember. You're going back to origins where everything began. And for St. Augustine it would have been that original state that man had in the garden. That oneness with God. So here's, here's where we went. So, what's going on as the souls go up purgatory is that at every level, pride, envy, yeah. wrath, sloth, all the way up, at every level, because of an act of humility, they're learning to see differently and they're recovering something of that wholeness they once had. Now, what is that wholeness? And here's, here's where it got really, really good for me. Remember, I quoted that passage from St. Thomas. Um, when St. Thomas is talking about the Trinity in his treatise on the Trinity, he says, um, in human terms, one is always smaller than two, because there's three. Because we're dealing with parts in the human order, contingent order, the material order. One is always less than two, and two is always more than one. With God, it's not so. 
God the Father is not more or less than the whole of the Trinity because he's being itself. So is the Son. The Son is not more or less than the whole of the Trinity. He's one in being with it. The same with the Spirit. So when we think about the Trinity, we have to get outside of our habit of materializing, containing things in terms of parts and wholes. We have to stretch our minds to enter into a metaphysical world that can't be understood in physical terms. I know I've gone over this. Is everybody okay on that? Mm -hmm. The importance of this is um, not small. If we're going to recover something, if purgatory has any meaning, it means recovering that wholeness that we once had with God. Before the fall, Adam and Eve beheld one another. They weren't separated as an object, subject-object. One of the effects of the fall is this dichotomy that we slip into subject-object. It gets easier for us to use each other as objects because there's something other. Loving one another becomes means becoming one with that. We use the word one flesh. Most people pass that off. What it means is overcoming the subject-object. To look at another person, always a matter of objectifying to objectify another analyze you know love means love is, is unitive it means becoming one with so the trinity is really an important image here in the way that saint augustine described it because it means what's happening is the, the souls undergoing penance are degree by degree recovering that wholeness they once had with god and we see it in a number of ways up towards the end of the purgatory um, Virgil already sees what Dante's thinking. When he goes up the Paradiso with Beatrice, she knows what he's thinking long before he thinks it. He'll start to speak and she already knows. And Dante begins to come to that point too. Meaning what? They're indwelling with each other. There's no longer a subject object. Even, even though they're distinct, Dante, Beatrice, they never lose their individuality. They're becoming one. That's one of the great mysteries of Christianity and why it's different from Hinduism. Because in Hinduism, after death, the Hindu looks at individual will as a sin. Christianity doesn't. The individual is, is the great gift of God, like him, our individuality. But what happens is um, Christianity protects our individuality and our separateness while also giving a place for the union that we experience when we become one in love. And I, I read that passage last week, remember when Dante and Virgil were talking about envy? And Virgil said, you've got your mind too much in material things. Remember, we talked about that in the, if you have a pie and there are more people, you get less, so you get envious. Virgil says, your mind's too much here. If you think about eternal things, it's like the God um, flashing his light, offering his love on a mirror. The more mirroring, the more fills out. So each time a soul enters heaven, it's not one, it's not heaven plus one. That's an earthly way of thinking. It's more like the multiplication of the fishes. When one soul enters heaven, the, the, the effect in terms of love is exponential because there's going to be an in, infinite indwelling with everybody else there. We're no, we're no longer trapped in that subject ob, object dichotomy. So you wouldn't count numbers then? No. You, try, you just say one entered and as such the whole you'll see it's interesting david you wait on it but because we're when we get into the paradiso 
we're going to reach a point where Dante's actually going to deal with that explicitly because we're beyond the world of mathematics and quantity and physical limitations. So, and we'll see that over and over. What Dante does with language is extraordinary. Indwelling. Um, wait to see the effects because what he, it's going to be wonderful to see what he does. But my reason for going back to this, because I didn't want you guys to miss this, is we're moving up purgatory. It's at every level, the souls are undergoing a penance, learning to see differently and to love. Remember, each time they do, they're growing in humility, a, a pea is stripped off, um, they're learning to see more clearly, they're learning to love, so they're overcoming this dichotomy. They're beginning to recover that wholeness that we once had with God and that I'm trying to describe here with this image. It just, it's been a big thing and I didn't want you guys to miss that, so... Okay, I'll, I'll move on, but keep that in mind. I mean, it, it, it just changes the way we see things. It, you know, doing penance is not just this technical thing. If it's doing anything, it should be changing the way we see, we feel, the way we are, you know, this Trinitarian principle to our nature. Okay, so welcome back. <laughs> well, thank, thank you. you. Well, thank you. Just, to me, it's amazing. To just, it's just important to see that. Okay, quick review. Once again, let me just try to define purgatory very simply. Purgatory is the effort with God's help to free ourselves from worldly attachments. I can't put it more simply. And if you keep in mind the siren episode, and I'm going to go back to it in a minute, you'll see it clearly. Purgatory is an effort on our part with God's help to free ourselves from worldly attachments. And more importantly, from the power those attachments have over us because of the way we love them. Okay? So purgatory is a way of learning to reorder our loves. That's another way of saying, we, and we learned the truth of this, remember those of you who have done this in the Odyssey, we cannot live in the past. Living in the past is living in guilt and shame, and we can't ignore it. We have to carry the past with us, but we can't dwell there. We have to live in the here and now with a hope now, faith now, hope now for something better, and love. And remember, the difference between love is faith and hope have to do with what is not yet. Love has to do with what's now. And to, to fully love, we have to struggle to let go of the past, to enter in love in the moment, so that it's real for us now. That's what the souls in purgatory are doing. Um... One of the great, three great concerns that we've been experiencing Dante to this point. One of them is the struggle between church and state. Now, why is that important? Turn to page 227. <clears throat> Remember, this is Sordello in the anti-purgatory section. We've already gone through that. It's his um, criticism of the abuses of the church from the side of the world, because remember, Sordello is excommunicated. He's, he, he's not in hell. Dante's really clear about that. He's excommunicated doesn't mean being damned. It's being outside the help the church offers. He's there waiting 
a time because he put off repenting too long. But he says this, top of 227, you priest who should pursue your holiness, remembering what God prescribed for you, let Caesar take the saddle as he should. See how this beast has grown viciously wild without the rider spurs to set her straight since you dare take the reins into your hand. We've been seeing this with a great variety of metaphors. This is a rider and a horse. The criticism is the church has taken over political power, but because it doesn't have the tools to deal with it, it's corrupted the world because laws need to be enforced severely. When they're not, a culture becomes lawless. Do we know anything about that in our world? Um, at the end of the page, 227 at the bottom, come heartless one, come see your noblemen who suffer. One of the effects of the church taking power is that all these noblemen who have rule over their provinces have lost it. They don't have the support they should. Come heartless one, come see your noblemen who suffer. Help them heal their wounds. Come see how safe it is to dwell in Santafiore. Come see your city, Rome, in mourning now, widowed, alone, lamenting night and day. My Caesar, why have you abandoned me? I love that phrase. You know that's from Christ on the cross. Except for Christ, it's not Caesar, it's the Father. It's a clear recognition on Dante's part of what Christ said. Give unto Caesar the world, law, the ruler, give unto God. The church should do. Go on over to... 283. This was in the um, level of the wrathful. Is that right? If, yeah. Um, and he meets Marco Lombard, top of 283. And he, he speaks about the loss of something the world needs badly. I was a Lombard, Marco was my name. I knew about the world. I love that good at which men now no longer aim their bows. What he loved more than anything was virtue. And he grieved because it was the one thing the world no longer had. Now this is 13th century. Okay. We're in the 20th century. I, I bet if you, if, you, if, you went, if you went around college campuses across this country, and if water, if any of you ever watch Jesse Waters' Waters World, if Jesse were to go around campus and say, give me a definition of virtue, people would look at you with bewilderment and not understand what you're saying. The path you're on will lead you to the stairs. Thus he replied, when then added, now I pray that you will pray for me when you're above. Um, Dante's troubled because he wants to know what's wrong with the world. I was first made aware of it um, below, and now it plagues my mind a second time. For your words, second, what I first heard there. The world indeed, as you have just declared, is destitute of every virtue known. What is every um, um, canto, every ledge dealing with? A recovery of virtue. What's the virtue opposite pride? Humility. What's the virtue opposite um, envy? Generosity. What's the virtue opposite um, wrath? Meekness. The answer to every one of those is a virtue. Who's the person in whom those virtues are most perfectly realized? Human person? Mary. She's the first goad on every level. Our whole effort on this word, as long as we're here, should be to struggle to become virtuous. 
to answer our excesses, put them away, become a better person. What is the cause of this? Dante says, please make it clear that I may teach the truth to other men. Some see it in the stars, some on earth. A deep sigh wrung by grief into alas, came first and then. The world, brother, is blind, and obviously the world is where you're from. You men on earth attribute everything to the sphere's influence alone, as if with some predestined plan they moved all things. If this were true, then our free will would be annihilated. It would not be just to render bliss for good or pain. Why do you reward somebody if they're only doing what can't be otherwise? We praise somebody when they do something good, and we criticize somebody when they're doing something wrong. It's a natural thing to do. If everything's predetermined... That doesn't make sense. Yeah. It it, it, it goes away. 284. The spheres initiate your tendencies. That is, physical things play a determined role. We can't deny them. There's necessities in our very makeup. But that doesn't mean we don't have free will. Your tendencies, not all of them, but even if they did, you have the light that shows you right from wrong. And your free will, which though it may grow faint, in its first struggles with the heavens can still surmount all obstacles if nurtured well. And then he he describes the soul, remember, going out, loving and desiring, and then because it's not curbed, it's not checked, what happens? Its desires get out of control, and it becomes lawless. Men therefore need the restraint of laws, needed a ruler able to at least discern the towers of the true city. That is, he's very seriously questioning whether there can be a good ruler who's not Christian. I'll come to that in a second. Because even if he's ruling the political order, he should have some sense of the natural good of man while he's on this earth. The law should be for that end. Not heaven, it's the church's concern. Um, True, the laws are there, but who enforces them? No one, the shepherd, the shepherd, the shepherd who is leading you can chew the cud. It is the priest who meditates, that's his job, to cut, to pray, to contemplate. Can chew the cud, but lacks the cloven hoof. And so the flock that you see shepherds greed for the same worldly goods that they have craved are quite content to feed on what he feeds. Since the Pope does that, so does everybody else. <clears throat> you can see bad leadership has caused the present state of evil in the world, not nature that has grown corrupt in you. O Rome, that brought the world to know the good, once shown two sons, given to Caesar, given to God. Now they're joined. Since joined now, neither fears the other one. If you still doubt, think of the grain when ripe. Each plant is judged according to its seed. Going over to 86. Well argued, my dear Marco, I replied, and now I understand why Levi's sons were not permitted to inherit wealth. Remember in the Old Testament, Levi was the priestly tribe, Mm -hmm. and they weren't allowed to inherit wealth. Why? The churches learned that. Because once a priest inherits wealth, um, he gets too attached to his worldly goods, and often, he becomes more attached to the king who oversees those than to the Pope. Um, And I gave this example, John Paul, in the middle of his tenure, um, gave a stern warning to the priest, I mean, because of the difficulties, with all the, um, you know, the demonstrations and the political involvement with, he he told the priest, get out of politics. He never said, don't speak to political issues. Pope can't do that. You know, um, 
but but the degree of, of involvement uh, in the political realm matters um, because if you get too attached to it you give your obedience to Caesar not so then this goes about my whole premise of why you should be um, give up your worldly goods if you're going to be a pope, a bishop, right. a cardinal. Right. We have certain ones that priest. do not do that. Right, yeah. yeah. Right. So That's why priests don't marry. You know, I mean, exactly that, because your loyalties get divided. But what, but what I'm saying about the worldly goods, so why yeah, is not all, not all orders on the that, that, That's what I'm saying. Why is, yeah. is, is that what he's alluding to here, that you should have that if you're going to be in the priesthood? As far as I know, I mean, that's pretty direct. I'm not, what, Mark, you've got something else in? So if I understand your question, and I, and I, may, I may not understand it, you're saying that... Actually, state it again, because I, I think I have an answer. I just wanted to try. No, I'm just wondering because you have certain orders that take a vow of poverty, which mm -hmm. in my religion is the same thing too. We mm -hmm. have an order that does that as well. But what I want to know is what is Dante inferring, <coughs> inferring that you should take the law of poverty to be so you won't have this. Divided. I don't know that he's. I mean, I, I don't think it's poverty. I think it's it's the power of the state, it, and it's it, it, at the end of the day, if a priest is going to be a priest, it's a full time job. Right. No. It's, what it's, it, but, so you can't try and govern, and you can't try and do things that have to do with ruling a people or managing financial or managing, states and managing the nation, and at the same time be a good. Priest. But you know what I'm saying because there are different. I'm not sure. I want to be careful because I, I can't speak authoritatively on any of that except in a simple way. And the, the, what I what all I know is that priests are, are asked when they take vows to renounce their attachments to the world. So right. all those go, um, and in some of them they have to take a vow of poverty, chastity. You know. Um, what I'm saying, in, in Dante's time, did he think that it would have been the important? same? Oh yeah, absolutely. Everything we've been reading, the whole point of like going back to this is just to just to make that clear. When it, and he's not saying priests don't have worldly needs to eat, to have a home, right. um, something you know. To pro most churches provide a home or you know. Um, let me leave it at that because if there if there are nuances, I'm not aware of them, and there may be. To me, it doesn't do away with the central principle, which is. Um, if priests who are serving God get attached to the world, they can't they can't give themselves the way they're committed to doing once they take vows and enter a order. Let me just leave it at that. Okay. okay. Um, so what what Dante is showing us very clearly is concerning men's sin, because remember people are doing penance. One of the causes of problems then and now, Milton's time, we saw that very clearly is this struggle between church and state. When those two become entangled, men lose from it. When, when, the loyal, when the loyalties or the dedication of a pope or a bishop or priest, the priestly orders, are divided, um, they can't do their job. When the ruler loses his power, when he gives up his authority over his domain, if he doesn't work to enforce laws the effect is a lawlessness. People aren't as, they're not as given to virtue. 
Um, so one of the causes of the problems that people are, are facing is they go, remember, come from the world itself. We're back in Plato's cave, and I want to go through that again, but you know that cave image. When we grow up, we're shaped by the influences around us. We take them in. We're not aware of them. As we grow, we become more and more conscious, and then we realize we've got to separate out here because otherwise we're in trouble. Dante's just saying one of the causes of sins in the world is this disorder. Okay. Um, what follows? Well, wait. I want to just. I want to just. Mm, let me just speak to this briefly. It's a, if everybody can hold the questions on this because it's too too complex. But let me just say this. Um, remember that for Judaism and Islam, there is no Christ. Christ is a prophet. There is no Trinity. Okay. Um, Judaism defines itself by its relationship to the law that was given to them by God. So what's fundamental to the Jewish person is the law. Looking forward to a Messiah that would save the, the chosen people. Christ came and the greater part of the Jewish nation rejected him, didn't see him as the Messiah, and continued to live under the law. Okay, now, a large number of Paul's letters are directed to this. He, he says that the law is death. Because if you have only the law, you'll only find fault with people. You'll be sensitive to injuries, to what, pe what people will do wrong. And you'll hold them to strict account. Remember, Christ didn't come to do away with the law. He came to bring mercy. Christ enters the world and brings them mercy. Jude, or Islam um, falls off from that break around 7th century, 8th century, 8th century with Muhammad. But he basically places himself under the law. It's an offshoot. In the, in the Islamic religion, the law is absolute. Yahya, or um, um, Allah, is the lawgiver. So the Jews and uh, Muslims define themselves in relation to a law, which means so long as that's their defining point, they will always be at odds with each other because they're always going to be finding injuries, injustices, and there will never be a mercy, certainly not from a God who died to, bring a, to fulfill the law in a way neither one of them realized. So in both Judaism and Islam, um, there is a refusal of mercy as we know it, as, as it was given by Christ. That's one thing to keep in mind. The other is, um, in Christianity, Christianity became one with philosophy as it developed because it recognized that all reason, everything that was a product of reason, had its ultimate source in God because he's the source of all reason. So they made a place for philosophy. Islam particularly did not. It went through a crisis in Dante's time of having these two truths, one truth by philosophy and one religion. And the religious leaders buried philosophy because they saw it as a threat to their belief. Um, wait, wait, hold on. Um, Judaism does the same thing denying Christ. There's no logos in the world. Okay, One of the great accomplishments, one of the beauties, if I can put it that way, one of the great goods of Christianity is that it can reconcile law or nature and faith and love. Because that's what Christ did by entering the world. He, a divine person entered and took on our human nature. If there's any question about the goodness before, there couldn't, or there couldn't be then. So 
in the in the Jewish and Islamic worlds there's nothing for either of those groups to reconcile law with mercy or forgiveness or philosophy we, we hear these phrases so often that we I don't think we think about them anymore that um, fide ratio faith and reason grace perfects nature just hold on to those two things for a minute okay fide ratio faith and reason in the Christian world those two things are reconcilable because their ultimate source is the same reason should be compatible with faith Plato made that clear before Aristotle came along in the late mid Middle Ages and um, Thomas took all of te um, Aristotle's teaching and developed the most extraordinary wholeness in a philosophic system we've had in, in all our history. Both of those things came together. Um, grace perfects nature. In the Protestant world, nature is corrupted. It's depraved. Not so for the Catholic. Nature is good. It's wounded, but it's good. And nature, grace can perfect it. Our assumption on that basis is if somebody's born crippled in this world, something went wrong with nature, there's no way that person's going to go into heaven without being perfected by a God of love, a God of grace. So the mysteries, the mysteries in our religion go far, far deeper than they do in Judaism or Islam. And they make us more at home even while we know this is not our final home because faith and reason are compatible. Nature and grace are compatible. That's not so for the Jewish Islamic world. So um, for Dante, when he says the true the ruler who, can see, who at least can see the tower of the true city, he's talking about a pope and um, a Caesar, the, the, the king or president, who can ascertain the divine nature of things and still work within his limits. So a Christian, a Christian ruler presumably would be able to do better if he understood these things. So for Dante, what, what was really important for him is something we've lost. What was important for Dante is what the Catholic Church has always known as natural law. That there is a law to nature. If we're in accord with it, we'll be one with God. Because that natural law is rooted in divine law. So slavery is against God's law because it's treating another human being as if he's a thing. There's that subject object economy again. Abortion is the, is, t is the most horrendous evil of the modern world because it's justified by a law. You can take a life. It's against, it's contrary to God's law. So when you look at a city, I mean, uh, politically, I mean, Carl, you, I don't want to go into this because we don't have time, but the only way to reconcile these things, faith and reason or grace and nature, um, is a person who understands these things and who can make them real, living. How, how, for instance, how many rulers have any notion of the nature of the human soul? Plato's great contribution to the West was in the Republic. He said, there's a nature of the human soul, and he made it clear. Any regime that makes laws out of attunement with that nature is going to lead to its own destruction. It's out of, it's out of tune with nature and, i.e., God. So there are ways to reconcile them, but they, they're contingent on somebody understanding these things. How many people know them today? How many people are aware of them? The modern world says there's no nature to man. He can make of himself whatever he wants. 
You want to change your sex? Change it. If there's no God, this is Dostoevsky's great argument. If there's no God, you can do whatever you want. You can kill somebody. Kill a baby. So you, they can be reconciled, but only under certain conditions. If those conditions aren't met, if people want to create a regime that's completely out of, if it's a totalitarian regime, it's out of a tune with the nature of man, there's no way it can survive. It will be destroyed. There's something in the human soul that will rise up. There's something in us because we're made in God's image. So what Dante's looking at are all these problems that are involve the state, the church, and also the choices of each individual human being. And those are the things that men are working off in purgatory. They're confronting them. Another way of putting it is no, nobody, and Dante, he would have known this, nobody can make a, um, a healthy change in the world if he doesn't first make a healthy change in himself. Plato knew that. Aristotle knew that. You want to be just? Mind your own business. Do what you should be doing. Um, make yourself better. Then you'll be able to bring a better soul to whatever it is you do with people. That's what people are doing going up purgatory. Um, and I've said it before. I believe purgatory, as Dante shows it, should be our life now. We should all be doing this. Um, if we don't complete it, our belief is it picks up in the next life. Okay. So, um, and then there are all these um, dis really important discourses. I'm going to just go over them really quickly because we're... <laughs> Any questions? Tracy, what? What, at her? Making faces at me? <laughs> <laughs> How did you, you, she wasn't even looking at you, you saw through her head, through the back of her head. Yeah, she oh, she did? <laughs> I had a dunce cap. <laughs> I think it was the word quickly. Quickly? Oh, no, it's everything. <laughs> well, I'm trying to help Marcy and Bob, too, they missed a lot, and you know that I spend a good amount of time reviewing anyway. Okay, let's go forward. Turn to page 284. Um, remember, this is, this is, in a sense, a prelude to Virgil's first, first discourse, because it's in, in this argument that Marco sets out why there's a lack of virtue in the world because of all these problems, the divisions, the conflict between church and state, the weakness of the human soul, that it's not properly raised. I mean, there are all sorts of problems. Um, Dante wants to know more about love, and on 290, Virgil gives this, what I believe is one of the most important discourses in Western history. I think this is extraordinary. And by the way, it sets itself against Plato. I gave, I think I, I gave you this contrast. In Plato's the um, Phaedrus, Plato's Phaedrus, Socrates makes the argument. This is so important. He makes the argument that natural love is flawed because Plato believes there's a, a natural depravity. Plato's behind the Protestant Reformation. He's there. We, I, I tried to show that in Milton. Plato's behind because Plato believes that there is a depravity to man. It's only when he 
develops a good intellect that he can overcome his sins because by nature he's depraved. Um, the body is a prison house. Remember I've used that image, that phrase, that's from Plato, the body is a prison house. Um, the body is depraved. Link that to Calvin or Luther or most of the Protestant Reformation thinkers. But the important thing I want to emphasize here is for Plato, natural love was inadequate. It was only intellectual love that became more and more refined that um, could help man. It wasn't until he could learn to see the forms, we went through this with Milton, which remember are super sensible, they're beyond our grasp. So only when he could see those that he could be healed. So I would call Plato, Plato's a realist, he believes that there's a reality, but he's an excessive intellectual, he's too much in his head. Here's Aristotle, this is Thomas going back through Aristotle. 290. The love of good which failed to satisfy the call of duty here is fortified. The ore once sluggish now is plied with zeal. He says, if you want to learn more, stay with me. And this is where it's really important. And remember, this is the center of the whole Commedia. These discourses are at the center of the, of the purgatory and at the center of the whole work. Their placement here is not an accident. This is the center of our being. It's from these things that we, our faith takes off, and our reason is helped. Neither creator nor his creatures ever, my son, lack love. There are, as you well know, two kinds, the natural love, the rational. Natural love may never be at fault. The other may, by choosing the wrong goal, by insufficient or excessive zeal, while it's fixed on the eternal good and observes temperance, loving worldly goods, it can be the cause of sinful joys. But when it turns towards evil or pursues some good with not enough or too much zeal, the creature turns from a creator. Now you know on the next page he breaks down the purgatory, right? You know all of this already. I gave you a quiz on this, you'd all get A's, right? Come on, you guys. Here, come on, here. What he's saying is the first three sins, pride, envy, wrath, are love directed towards the evil of another person, right? right? Here, the bottom. So it follows, if I argue well, this evil that man loves must be his neighbor's. The love springs up three ways in mortal clay. There's the man who sees his own success connected to his neighbor's downfall. Go on over. Yeah. Next, he who fears to lose honor and fame. Envy. Finally, he who is wrong flares up in rage. He wants to hurt somebody else. Wrath. So love is the... Here, go back to that statement. Neither, neither natural love may never be at fault. The other may by choosing the wrong goal by insufficient or excessive zeal. When we desire the evil to come to another person, it takes the form, one of three forms, pride, envy, wrath. When it, when it loves good things, it can, it can fail in two ways. It can be insufficient in love, which is sloth, or it can be excessive. You love worldly good, you love food, you love sex. So here's the extraordinary thing. The first time I read this, it knocked me off my feet. I'm not kidding. I, I think I gave you the story when I was at Claremont in graduate school and, and somebody who was down there received a letter from a friend saying he, got, he learned of the divorce and his response was, um, I was shocked because his wife left him. I thought love was enough. I think I've told you. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right. And it shocked me. I, well, I, so this is a letter when I was in graduate school. One of the people there had a friend back home. We used to play tennis, and I knew all these people. 
So when I heard the letter, I was shocked, but I, I was taken by his phrase. I thought love was enough. Because in my heart of hearts, since I was a kid, one of the things that meant most to me in my life was love was enough. And here was this guy who's saying love's not enough. I could not answer it. It took me it, it took me a while and then finally it hit me. It was the wrong kind of love. It's what well, the world understands as love. The, the world has no sense of a cross. None. The Shakespeare poems we just read last week, love is ever fixed, you know, just it means bearing <laughs> when you don't want to. Or in your pride, you don't think you deserve it. Um, so Virgil's saying the source of evil in the world is love. God made nothing evil. God only made good. There is no inherent evil in the world. No matter what the Protestants say, there is no inherent evil. Everything is good. What we do with human choices brings evil into the world. So our view of the world is very different from a Protestant in believing that there's a natural depravity. Well, that's not all true. Not all practical. I'm making a generalization. I know the higher churches are, but just a generalization. If you'll... Let me make. Let me quote the, the broad church, Protestant. Okay, that follows Luther and Calvin. And um, okay, is everybody okay? And I think I gave the example interesting in, in Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, when Raskolnikov goes to kill the pawnbroker, he plot, he plots out this murder and he gets this axe to kill her. He goes in, because he, he justifies it because she's so greedy and cruel. So he justifies the murder. This is a, I, I, I'm thinking we might do crime and punishment along with Brothers Karamazov. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to laugh. <laughs> we, we, all of us have got to stay alive for the next 10 years. Okay, good. Um, Raskolnikov plans this murder and kills her. He takes the knife and splits her head. Lizaveta, who's a idiot girl, she's not all there, she's raped by the men, I mean she's abused. I think she's the niece of the pawnbroker, I can't remember. She walks in surprisingly. Um, Raskolnikov has to hit, has to kill her to cover his track. He kills her. Instinctively, without thinking, he turns the axe around and, or sorry, when he kills Lizaveta, he takes the blunt axe, the blunt head, and crushes her skull. When the girl comes in, he takes the sharp axe and kills her. Why does Dostoevsky do that? There's only one reason. Because the, however brutal this, remember he's a killer right now. He, he will repent. He will repent. Um, because it's an act of mercy. He has no kindness for the, no kind feelings for the pawnbroker. Well, I mean, you can, you know, we can, but I just, that to me it was amazing that Dostoevsky did that. You know, to, to, what he's showing is there's the natural love doesn't err. There's something, there's something in us inherently good. God made us that way. What we do with our mind, and think about what we do there. Justify, argue, excuse. I mean, we use our minds badly all the time. The two things we've got to get straight in the world is how we use our minds and how we use our wills. What's going on right here? Okay. Um, so let's let's go forward now. So the, the, what we're dealing with today are, is upper purgatory, mm -hmm. avarice, gluttony, 
and lust. And you remember when we finished last time, Dante and Virgil had stopped on the ledge of Slothful yeah. before they ascend to the Avarice. And Dante has the dream of the siren. I don't want to go through it, but on page 298, 299. Remember when she first appears in his dream, she's stuttering, cross-eyed, stumbling along, main feet with ugly yellow skin and hands deformed. I stared at her, and as the sun revives, a body numbed by the night's cold, just so my eyes upon her work to free her tongue and straighten out all her deformities gradually suffusing her wan face with just the color love would have desired. Once her tongue was loosened by my gaze, she started singing, um, and the way she sang captured my mind. It could not free itself. I am the sweet siren. I am whose song beguiles the sailors in mid-sea, enticing them, inviting them. My singing made Ulysses turn away. Remember, I've described this. Those of you who did the Odyssey, when Odysseus came to the island, island of the Sirens, he had the men tie him to a mast so he could hear her. Remember, he always wants to be better than everybody else. He has to experience what the other men can't. Remember, that's what brought his downfall in that passage where his ship wanted to go through that. To, to go to that mountain, to be complete in himself as if he could, thinking he could do that without God. Oh, Virgil, Virgil, who is this? Um, Lucia comes. Um, she gets stern with Virgil, and then um, he sees the other, ripped her garments off, exposing her as far down as the punch, the stench pouring from her woke me from sleep. It had to be so foul. Why is this place here? I think for two reasons. One is, it, it is God, it's a perfect image of sloth. Um... And I'm going to make a claim here. I know I may offend some people here. I don't know, but I think there's an element of sloth in everybody. I, I think I'm a pretty hardworking person, but there are times when I look at what I do and think, God, that's underneath underneath the hard work. The work can be for the wrong reason. Um, the Germans made that clear after the defeat. I mean, they they were the most industrial people in the world. Um, one great writer saw their work as an expression of their despair, that they couldn't work harder. You know, it had to be impossible time for the Germans. There's an element of sloth, which means we're, we're not properly disposed to the world. We still haven't made God everything. So the way we go about things, even if we're hardworking, has an element of sloth. There's something too self-serving in it. So one is, sloth is here... Um, because it's illustrating the fact that we can not love sufficiently the way we should, but also because it's a critique of idolatry. And that was the point I, I think we left off. Remember, what Dante's showing is the power that the world has over it, the worldliness that everybody's trying to free themselves because we love things too much for ourselves. So sometimes we work really hard and don't see that what we're doing is really for ourselves. We are not moderate, we're not temperate, we're not virtuous. Even though we're hardworking, there's an element of sloth and despair, an idolatry. And I gave the example of most of us, I think, when, when we're in high school and we fall in love and you know, think we've met our match and then two weeks later we break up. I mean, what happens in that two weeks? We, we, I, I mean, how, what's really interesting to me is how many people come out of that criticizing themselves? It's almost always the other person. 
he did this, he did this, he did this, she did this, you know. We don't see that, that one of the problems was our love was excessive, that we projected onto that person more than that person was, and then got really disappointed when they didn't live up to our expectations. And then we find fault in them. So this is one of the great critiques, and it's appropriate, because what Dante is going to show us is an excessive love of things, of food and wine and sex. What about conditional and unconditional love, too? What about it? How does that play in this whole thing? Oh, God. Well, it's a question. God, what do I do with you? <laughs> here, let me give you my honest answer and then go on because okay, this, this is, I just. Fine. That's fine. Did you everybody hear Roger's question? Mm. Yeah, can you ask it louder? I said, well, then how is it with uh, conditional love and unconditional love? I've been struggling that with my mother's passing because I, I find that she had conditional love and not yeah. unconditional love. I struggle with that a lot. Let me give you, I, I mean, I'm not quite sure how it relates to Don here, but let me, let me take a stab at this. Um, I believe that God loves us in con- unconditionally. Um, I don't think, I've said this before, I don't think God puts the sinners in hell. They, that's a choice they make, that's where they go. God's loving us con- unconditionally doesn't mean there aren't conditions for us to do what we do. We know that everything we do is based on a law, that we not do something. So even in God's relationship with us at the very beginning, you cannot eat of this tree. Chesterton has a wonderful way of treating this in orthodoxy. He said, all the goodness in the world rests on a veto of our not doing some things. You want to live in a glass house? Don't throw stones. I mean, things like that. You know, fairyland, the law of fairyland is you shall not do this. We can can have um, a, a good in our lives with each other if we don't do some things. So our life is full of conditions. We, to, 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 grow, to grow into our nature, we have to fulfill the law of our nature. We have certain things to do. We can't hate our evil, you know, or I mean, in pride, the evil to come to another. We can't, uh, we, can't, we, can't, we can't be happy when somebody loses something in envy, I and mean, we've gone through that. Um, we can't eat too much. We can't drink too much. We can't have sex too much, all those things, because they all reveal our weaknesses. So there's a condition to everything we do. Yeah, wait, wait, hold on. Just So there's a condition to everything we do. It doesn't mean that, that God's love isn't complete because it is. But we have things to do in our fall to go back. And Christ makes that clear, I think, if you can call it clarity. He brought an unconditional, he loved everybody, but he fulfilled the law and what he did. He didn't do away with it. So he's offering um, a divine love that's complete, but it's in answer to um, a sin, a a breaking of a law. And that's his... Well, I I actually meant between people. God, I understand that. I I, I would say the same thing. I mean, we're asked to, we're asked, you know, through all the court, all the work that we've done, we're asked to fulfill a law to not because if here it is again, law and mercy. If we have mercy without a law, we've got Saint Thomas, a disaster. You've got enabling. Mm-hmm. You just got people going on. If you have a law without mercy, you've got um, cruelty, mm-hmm. something brutal. And I, I'm sorry that I didn't bring because last week I, I said bring Merchant of Venice. Those of you who know the Merchant of Venice. Um, <coughs> Do you remember the lines, Doc, the mercy speech? 
It droppeth as the gentle dew from heaven. She describes mercy as tempering law, what we do with it. I mean, let me give a good example. Our, our, Our grandchildren do something wrong. I can send them into time out of the chair viciously, you know, full of wrath and go sit down and mean and calling names or I can also send them to the chair and try to do it in a spirit of mercy mm-hmm. which will absolutely change the spirit of that law it won't do away with the law but it mu- but, but we've been at bring a charity to the way we deal with law we can't separate those two things and the, the whole habit of the modern mind especially after the reformation is to make faith everything and law nothing mm-hmm. the, the protestant broad church broad, is antinomian law has no place faith is everything reason has no place reason is the basis of law according to the protestant reason is depraved We're, it's only when we use faith and as a supernatural thing that we can get those things straight so the modern world is just broken over this thing but just keep in mind send a child a time out you can do it some priests would say legalistically the, 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 the danger for all of us who take religion seriously is we can get very self-righteous. Mm-hmm. Or what's the word in, you know, in Faulkner when we did abomination? The, the tendency to, to look at somebody in the most horrible way and assume depravity immediately. We're asked to hold up that law, but in charity. Is that easy? No. Anyway, that's... Okay, thank right? you. Okay, let's, um, here, I want to go, um, page 300. I'm going to do this very, very quickly. Wait, let me breathe for a second, because I've been going too fast. I'm trying to do a lot of catch-up here. And let me stop for a minute. I tried to do it a moment ago and <laughs> got a smile from my wife. <laughs> Any questions? Besides Valerie, something easy, something direct. Or marks something easy. <laughs> what is the definition of logos? <laughs> Somebody give me a bat. <laughs> oh, Marcy, you don't know how much I've missed you. You know, you know that this feud between Marcy and me started two years ago when she said, "Define logos." Then a week later would be define. She also would be nailing me down on something, <laughs> keeping me honest, really keeping me honest. Well, when I asked him that, he spent the whole next week writing and studying about it in order to tell <laughs> us the answer. <laughs> and that's the time when he said then I, that I was the worst troublemaker Trouble. in class. Because <laughs> I asked him. Remember what I said about how people misuse the intellect. Just hold on to that. <laughs> Okay, come on, let's go on. Page 301 and 300. When Dante comes to the level of the avaricious, he sees people lying prostrate on the ground looking at the dust. Um, um, At the top of 301, at hesit pavimento anima mea. As good as I can come. My soul cleaveth unto the dust. 
because they were too concerned with worldly things, that's what they've got now. Their faces are down. It's a little bit, remember like the envious who had their eyes shut? They, they, they turned away from the good in life and their punishment was to close off that good. They, they, they had to learn to hear. Remember, and just like the proud had to learn to twist their heads, they had to strain to see. So at every ledge, people are having to strain against their habits to do things differently. That's why it's a mountain. It, um, that's why Lent is supposed to be a labor. It's, we're doing hard things. We're being honest with ourselves. And set. We have to work hard on these faults that we have. Um, when Dante talks to the spirit, he sees that um, face down, um, um, lamenting. He says, spirit in whom weeping makes right that without which no one returns to God, I beg you, interrupt your greater task. The weeping is because we grieve for our sins. We're sad, should be sad. Blessed are the mournful. We, we're sad to see what we do with ourselves. That's a blessing. A moment tell me who you were and why. You all lie prone. Is there some way that I can help you all in the world I left alive? Why, heaven has made us turn our backs to heaven, the Spirit said. You soon shall know, but first... I can't. It's, um, he, he's the successor of Peter. It's Pope Adrian. This is the first Pope, I think, that we've seen who wasn't in hell. <laughs> All the others have been in hell. And he says on page 302, I was, alas, converted very late. Only when I became shepherd of Rome did I perceive the falseness of the world. My heart I saw could never rest down here, nor in that life could greater heights be reached, and so I came to love the other life. You know, we begin, if we don't have help, loving the world. I mean, it's immediately around <clears throat> us. It's hard not to love it. Mm -hmm. It becomes everything to us. It defines, it defines our whole way of being. And we don't see, we're blind. I mean, if you watch the news day, and I can't watch it without you. God, I mean, what are these, what people don't see? You know, they're so entranced, and they think they're the clear-headed ones. Um, um, it was only late in life that he saw his fault. 303, why are you kneeling at my side, he asked, and I replied, your dignity commands. My conscience would not let me stand up straight. This is the Pope. Upon your feet, my brother, he replied, you should not kneel. I am a servant, too, with you and all the others of one power. If you had ever understood the words sounded by the Holy Gospel, Necu um, Nubenter, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Remember, Christ says that in heaven there are no marriages. Um, our, our marital unions will give way to a larger world in entering heaven. So it is with the Pope um, that in heaven, people, they are all brides of Christ. The wedding feast dramatically shifts everything. Um, he says, I have a niece on earth by name, Alasia, a good girl. May she not be led astray by all bad examples of our house. Once again, there's that family um, danger. Um, page 304 in the middle, God damn you, ageless she-wolf, you whose greed, whose never-sated appetite has claimed more victims than all other beasts of prey. Remember the she-wolf was the... That's the lowest of the, the lowest. Right, the lowest section of hell. Mm -hmm. The most vicious, 
the most cunning and, and never satisfying. Dante describes her as having a, an endless appetite. Um, and I think the, the relevance of that term here is that we often say that money, people say money is the root of all evil. I don't think Dante, I think he believes pride is, but that's a common phrase. Money is the root of evil. Um, he meets Hugh Capet, um, 308. Oh, Avarice, what more harm can you do? You have so fascinated all my heirs, they have no care for their own flesh and blood. This was from a royal family. There it is again. I mean, over and over and over again, we see the dangers of the family. Um, Three ten, the mountain shakes. Dante, for a moment, is frightened. Um, Glory and excelsis all sang Deo. At least this is what those close by sang out. Glory to God in the highest. It's at this point, remember, Stasius is released and he joins Dante and Virgil on three thirteen. Up here, the mountain trembles when some soul feels itself. Now, somebody asked a question about this, so I want to just take a second with it here because I thought it was a good question. Um, the mountain trembles when some soul feels itself pure enough to stand erect or start at once to climb. Then comes the shout. The will to rise alone proves purity. Once freed, it takes possession of the soul and wills the soul to change its company. It willed to climb before, but the desire high justice set against it inspired it to wish to suffer as once it wished to sin. So there's something natural in the human soul that works with God to say, stop. So when the sun goes down, they stop. I mean, there's a rule there. But what he's, this is sort of amazing. He, it's, you get the sense that you can only pass when somebody says, okay, you're free to go now. What Dante's making clear is that there's a moment when the soul completes its penance. It's not like it's marking days off. It's, I don't think that's what happens. It just reaches a point when it exists it returns to the state of wonder that it has at a child, and in that wonder, it's freed, it goes on, of its own. It's purified on its own. It's free. Love and do what you will. It goes on. So it's an amazing statement about the nature of the soul, you know, that um, there's this intrinsic good that um, once it's freed from its sin, it moves on its own initiative. And I, who for 500 years and more have lain here in my pain, felt only now will, felt only now will free to um, raise me to a higher still. 500 years, he was there. I know that some people have had questions about. Turn over to 320 for a second. Top of 320. Before I brought the Greeks to Theban streams with my poetic art, I was baptized, but was a secret Christian out of fear, pretending to be pagan many years, and for this lack of zeal, I had to run 400 years on the fourth circle, which is what? Go ahead. Sloth. So that's 900 years. Stasius was born first century, end of the first century. This is Dante's writing 1200. So that's 900 years. That means there's about 250 years not accounted for. Which means what? (laughs) Dante? 
I, I mean, the only answer can be he, he did 250 years at the lower lower level. Mm -hmm. I mean, what we're seeing through Stasius, there's this is Stasius is a really important figure. We can pass him up, but I want to say something about him. That means he did um, 1,200 years plus 1,250 years, 250 on the lower pride, envy, you know, wrath, whatever they were. But the major sins, the greater sins. I think you had a question about this, David. That the, the graver sins for him were sloth and avarice. That even when he was a Christian, um, he, his sin, by the way, is prodigality. That he wasted. Well, he, 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 um, because prodigality and, and, and uh, avarice are counter opposite images of the same thing. Um, that he spent his, his Christian life in hiding and wasting what he'd done. So Dante's making clear a number of things here that, that people spend multiple years on different levels. Sloth is serious um, and um, avarice, the, our attachments to the world, are, I mean as we're watching these are, are serious, serious challenges for all of us. I want to take a, um, a second with Stasis. We're gonna, we're gonna, I'm gonna rush through these and try to get to the end here in a second. Um, why Stasius? What's Dante doing with this figure? Um, on page 315, he describes his life very, very briefly. He gives a sketch of his life on 314. <clears throat> Living during the time of Titus, um, he was there when um, Jerusalem was destroyed. My name is Stasius, still well known on earth. I sang of Thebes, then of Achilles' might, but found the second weight too great to bear. Spark that kindled my poetic <coughs> ardor came from that sacred flame that set on fire more than a thousand poets. I mean the Aeneid. He has no idea that the author of the Aeneid is right in front of him at this point. But he's saying very clearly, um, <coughs> he, um, he loved Virgil more than anybody. Dante loved Virgil, we all know that. Um, Stasius wrote an epic model on Homer's The Iliad, which is about Achilles. Um, but it changed it um, because he was Roman, not Greek. At the top of 315, and if only I could have been alive when Virgil lived, I would consent to spend an extra year of exile on the map. At these words, Virgil turned to me, his look told me in silence, silence, but the power of a man's will is often powerless. Laughter and tears follow so close upon the passions that provoke them that the more sincere the man, the less they will obey his will. Is that clear to everybody? He, he, first of all, he doesn't know that it's Virgil. And Virgil is expressing his surprise because Stasius is complimenting him. And Stasius doesn't know that it's Virgil. That's one. But the other is Dante's description, laughter and tears. Haven't all of us had moments where something happens, whatever the circumstances are, and we immediately tear up, and it can be a joy. I can be at Mass sometimes when almost nothing is said and all I can it's like a surge in my heart and I find my eyes getting teary uh, we can hear about the sadness of somebody and lots of people wouldn't think, think. some people will tear up 
happened to me a couple of nights ago with a friend when I heard about an ordeal he was going through. I should have prayed for him today. If you're sincere, if you've got a sincere heart, your heart won't hold back. I mean, even against your will. If a man's will is often perilous, even though you don't want to show your tears. <laughs> I've been embarrassed myself a number of times reading that supernatural poem. And, but I'm sure that's true for all of us, that we have moments where something happens and it's like our heart just just gets large and we can't contain it. Tears will come. The joy is so great at this moment. Um, uh, when Stasius learns, you seem to find my smiling very strange, I said, oh ancient spirit, but I have to tell you something stranger still. The shade here who directs my eyes to heaven is the poet Virgil who bequeathed to you the power to sing the deeds of men and God. Soon as Stasius is here, that 316, already he was bending to embrace my teacher's feet. But Virgil, brother, no, you are a shade, and a shade you see. Because remember, when he goes, when he tries to embrace him, he just goes through. This that's happened a couple of times here. Now you understand how much my love for you burns deep in me when I forget about our emptiness. This is I called this moment, you know, when we talked about it before, surprised by joy. Um, it's my. I just realized. Is it eight twenty? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I've got. I haven't set my watch. <laughs> I've been looking. I've been thinking. God, I'm so far ahead of myself. I'm really glad. It's about eight twenty-one. I know. God. Here, hold on. You remember that surprise by Joy? I told you. I'll, I'll read that poem. I'll bring the Wordsworth poem. Surprise by Joy. His his sister died. He's taking a walk. They used to take walks together, and he's so enraptured by the beauty of the scene, he turns to say something to her when she's not there. And I, we know, you hear stories of couples when one of them has passed, when somebody yeah. could be sitting down. They're watching a movie and they're so overcome that the, the, the joy so takes over that um, it overcomes us. Okay, just this, and then we'll stop. This is where I wanted to get to tonight. Um, Dante's going to encounter two poets on the level of gluttony here. Two poets. He's going to encounter two more poets. Listen to this because this is so important. In fact, it's on the handout. I shouldn't. I probably shouldn't have given you this handout tonight, but it's there. Um, two more poets um, on the level of lust. Four poets, Stasius, Dante, and Virgil. Why at the top of purgatory is there such a focus on poetry? Okay, I just want to leave that question. Somebody give me a book. Wait, hold on. Hold on. Wait, how's it going? Oh, if I could ask you not to do something. This is the rule. I'd like you not to read the handout that I gave you because I gave it away. If you want to read it, go ahead. But I, but I would encourage you not to. Then what's going on here at the top of Purgator is really, really important. Because it, it's done. Remember what? What? How did? The, hold on. The, how did the inferno open? Francisco and Paola were reading a work of literature. How did purgatory open? Casella and Dante start singing a song. At the top of purgatory, he's dealing with poetry because he's dealing with art and the influence of art on our character. And what he's saying, I believe, is profound. Because you all, we all know how powerful art, music, stories can affect us. Movies, all of it. Songs, 
So it's no accident Dante's going right to the center of our lives and how we learn, what we learn, what shapes the way we, what shapes the way our minds see, and what shapes our hearts and the way they feel. So it's really important. Okay. I'm sorry. I was looking. It just, it just hit me. It can't because Suzanne just walked out. What's she going out so early for? Are we done? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Sorry. Good. On uh, March the 29th. Called what? Unplanned. 